Alright, this is going to be part two of this uh, sort of like, I guess it's like an autobiography, self-reflection. I don't even really know why I'm doing this. I've just wanted to talk about this for a while because this whole concept of ego death is something that I was talking to John Ballas about in Miami. And I think it's a really fascinating subject because I find a lot of commonality with people who have been through ego death. Um and some of the personality traits that they exhibit and some of their abilities to self-actualize and their intellectual honesty. Um, It seems to be a pretty important process in personal growth and self-development. And I've wanted to talk about this for a while and I've been hesitant to, um, but here I am. And I'm recording this in the car, so the audio is not as good as what I traditionally produce and I apologize for that. Uh, This is just the easiest way for me to do it at the moment. So this is part two of my self-reflections on ego death. Um, I talked in part one a little bit about my motivations, but I think I could elaborate on that, like the motivations that I had around why I wanted to go become a Navy SEAL so bad. So they were pretty multifaceted, um, and they were multifaceted enough that I was you know, 100% thoroughly convinced that it was the only thing, like the only path forward for me in life. Like I, I've always been kind of a one dimensional thinker in that regard. Like I set my sights on something and I dedicate 100% of my efforts to achieving that one goal. Um, I'm, I'm generally a very focused person. And if I don't have something like that to focus on, I can be a little bit aimless. Um, It's why Bitcoin was a really useful discovery for me because it gave me focus, you know, to learn and and study something for like four years in a row. Um, It's why, you know, the goal of becoming a Navy SEAL was a really big thing for me because it was like just laser-like tunnel vision on that one objective. I I only applied to one college because I knew that that was where I wanted to go. And the question was always like, well, what if you don't get in? Like, you should have a backup plan. That's not how I live my life. Uh, I don't don't do backup plans. Like, I commit myself fully to things. Um, And and that was where I was at with the Navy SEAL thing. And like I said, the motivations were multifaceted. So a big part of it was that, like I said in part one, I had identified... And I developed this this sense of unease because I had identified uh, the how unsustainable things looked to me, right? Just the, the general nature of society just seemed very out of tune with the truth. Um, and I didn't yet understand really anything about political theory or economics or philosophy or history. And I knew something was going to come to a head. In my lifetime, America was going to look completely different. The human condition was going to look completely different um, from my vantage point at this point in time. And, and I knew enough about history to know that those types of things, transitions can be really messy. Um, so a big part of my motivation to wanting to try to become like a special forces type um, person well the the, in the navy special forces is the army in the navy it's a special operator but uh i wanted to develop and cultivate all of these skills that i was expecting may be especially necessary or useful 
in the future, you know, like the ability to shoot a gun and, and think and react tactically. And, um, those were all skills that I wanted and like to know how to, you know, scuba dive and basically be an angel of death. Like those were all things that I wanted to learn how to do, even if they're maybe not, um, practically applicable and they come with a huge cost of being an angel of death for the state, which I didn't at all understand the ramifications of that type of um, yoking at that point in my life. So that was the first motivation. The, the second motivation was that like I wanted people to like me without really having to get to know me. Like this is something I heard Bill Burr say. Um, he talked about how it was a revelation he had as why he became a comedian was because he wanted to be able to make a room full of people like him um, just by like making them laugh. I think that I had some similar subconscious motivations there. Like I wanted, you know, the, the people who didn't, who stopped liking me in high school or who like never gave me a chance in life or who like doubted me. Um, really anybody that I had ever had like an ax to grind with for any reason in life, I wanted them to think, oh wow, I was wrong about that guy. Like he's a really cool guy, look at him, he went and became a Navy SEAL, like, wow, what a badass, and I wanted, I wanted that, like, and I, I don't think that that's unique for anybody that, um, goes through that type of program, I think that there's a lot of prestige just with being in the military, especially in American culture, um, anytime anybody who's a civilian finds out that you've been in the military or in the military, there's always, like, this, awkward reverence where they're like oh thank you for your service and it's really weird and I, I'll talk about that another time but um, don't do that by the way because nobody in the military likes that because if you knew what most people in the military do on a daily basis you, you wouldn't say that the only people who say that are the ones well that's not entirely true I've, I've heard veterans say that to people but they're usually the types of veterans who saw combat and and know that sometimes the ultimate sacrifice is paid um, by people and and for what right that's the question but we're not there yet I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself um, so that was another motivation for me was just to solve some of my uh, deep-seated insecurities the, the other thing was I thought <laughs> This is going to sound silly, right? But this is the truth. I thought that, you know, being a Navy SEAL would help me better be able to attract women. I know that that sounds silly, but it, it was the honest truth. Like, if I'm being honest with myself, that was part of my motivation was that, like, wow, it'll probably be way easier for me to get a girlfriend, like, if I run around with a bunch of, like, badass dudes who are essentially in a biker gang, right? And I go through all this badass stuff and... Yeah, it'll be super easy to get a girlfriend. Because I had long struggled. It wasn't that, like, I couldn't get a girlfriend. It was that I was struggling throughout most of my adolescence to find a girl that I was compatible with. Like, you know, I'm not, like, a super attractive dude, but I'm not, like, bad-looking. And I was always in really good shape, so... And, and fairly confident. So it wasn't that, like, I couldn't find girls that were attracted to me. Like, that wasn't the problem. It was finding a girl that had the qualities that I wanted um, and and finding them and, and locking them down, I guess. Um, actually, when I was a junior in college, I wrote my, my wife 
who my now wife, she wasn't my wife at the time, uh, an anonymous letter because her and I had have known each other since we were like 15 and when I was a teenager she chased after me when I was a teenager and I was a dumbass so I was like keeping her at arm's length kind of and playing games and uh, eventually she kind of like lost interest and, and went a separate way in life and we stayed in touch but not we weren't like super close and when I was a junior in college I realized like wow that girl was really special you know she had she had all the qualities that I now know are what I desire in a woman. I wrote her an anonymous letter when I was a junior in college and um, push came to shove years later like she figured out it was me and we ended up reconnecting and um, we're married today <laughs> expecting our second kid soon so um, yeah you know when it, I don't have like a lot of dating advice for young men it, it sucks and I essentially had God put the perfect woman in my life um, I don't know what to tell young men who are trying to find a, a woman that isn't a solipsistic, uh, hypergamous mess. Um, but, you know, work on yourself first and figure out what it takes, what, what it means to be a man. And, you know, the only thing I can say is be selective um, as to who you date and, and what your dating life is like. If you're just sleeping around um, in, with women you meet in bars, you're not going to find the woman that you want to raise your babies. It's just the honest truth. I met my wife in church. Um, but yeah, that so that was a big motivation for me because at the time, you know, I had this dream that like I would become a Navy SEAL and then like this, the, you know, um, my wife now or some other woman who was the woman of my dreams would finally say like, okay, yeah, this is the guy I want. So like, I guess I will um, describe a little bit of the dynamic between men and women. Women are the, the choosers right like women are the ones who choose whether or not a man and a woman initiate a relationship like right out of the gate um you know because you can walk up to a woman and like with a, with a cold approach uh and just be like hi what's your name and, and at that moment she's choosing whether or not she's gonna just like hard reject you or you know be warm and open and interested and everyone knows that that is essentially flirting right um whereas men are the qualifiers men are the ones who determine you know, whether or not a relationship really goes beyond that, most of the time. I'm speaking generally here, okay? Please don't attack me for edge cases or outliers. I understand not everyone is the same, but I'm talking about the, the general psychology of the way men and women behave and interact. Men are the qualifiers. Um, so that it's important that you keep that frame of reference in mind. And traditional masculinity and traditional femininity are normal, healthy things. Um, and they should be embraced and not rejected. Uh, traditional family values and traditional family dynamics are what make families work. But that's all I'll say about that. So but continuing on with my motivations, um, I covered most of them. The only other one was really that, like, because of my extremely weak understanding of the world at the age at which I made the decision that I wanted to be a Navy SEAL, I had this romantic notion that by being an agent of the state, I could somehow save the world. That by working for Uncle Sam and maybe being good enough at my job of essentially, you know, being a trained killer, I could defeat America's enemies who, I, you know, I knew at the time, right? This is how I thought. Um, were the, the goal of America's enemies is to take away freedom and democracy. And by um, 
pledging my life in service to the state and fighting my nation's enemies, I could stamp out um, this threat to freedom and liberty. And it sounds so ridiculous when I say it now out loud, but that was really what I believed. Uh, and I'm trying to be honest and transparent here about you know, the, the, the growth and the development that I went through in this process and, and how I got to be the person that I am now, who I would mostly consider um, an anarcho-capitalist slash libertarian uh, slash politically agnostic slash cypherpunk bitcoiner slash liberty freedom-minded anti-democracy person. So now that I've covered the general overview of the motivations uh, for why I was doing what I was doing, um, I suppose I could also say, I, I think I talked about this in part one, um, but the other part of my motivations were just that I, I wanted to sort of buck the status quo. Like I, I couldn't, I, I was managing, I was working, doing like physical labor at the time, like through most of my time I was in college, in addition to like all my physical training, you know, like running and swimming extremely long distances and essentially like the kind of training you'd be doing for like an Ironman, but with a bunch of like calisthenics and CrossFit mixed in and um, a whole lot of combat sports, which, which I tapered off the combat sports towards the end of my time in college just because I was concerned about injury and I didn't want to um, be injured and then be unable to... Um, you know, go do Navy SEAL training. So the combat sports sort of took a back seat, but I just really wanted to buck convention in as many ways as I could in my life. And the best path that I saw to do that, you know, it w in respect to all my other motivations was to go and join this elite special operations community. Um, so the prep work that I was doing was a, a lot of physical training. Um, you know, I had a job that was also physical, so I, there were days when I would go and work, you know, like outside in the hot summer sun all day long for like 12 hours and then get off work and then go train. Um, uh, it was pretty intense. Uh, and funny enough, like no matter how much you train for this type of thing, like nothing can really prepare you for the type of mental and physical stress. Um, that a training program like BUDS, which is the Navy SEAL program, puts you through. Um, but I would say, like, all things considered, I was fairly well-prepared, probably not as well-prepared as I should have been. Uh, but I also did a lot of mental preparations as well, like meditations and, and visualizations and, um, like, a lot of sports psychology-type things to help me, I guess, better actualize myself towards my goal. I, I did a lot of reading. I've always been an avid reader, um, but in my younger years in life, it was more so nonfiction. And as I have gotten older, it's become primarily, if not exclusively, nonfiction. Uh, and that was sort of like an interesting shift in my intellectual perspectives in life is when I finally made the connection that reading mostly fiction, I wouldn't say it's totally useless, but as an adult, um, it doesn't do you a ton of good in helping you create a, a cohesive worldview if all you're doing is reading fiction. You need to read nonfiction. You need to read books written by people much smarter than you um, who explore complex topics and ideas and 
you need to read like treatises, right? Like reading Ludwig von Mises' Human Action, which is an economics treatise, was a very formative experience for me. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. This was years later. Um, but as part of my prep work for BUDS, like my mental prep work, one of the books that I read was um, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, uh, which is actually one of the books that's recommended reading. There's a book called Breaking Buds, which is like a psychological um, breakdown of all of the types of behaviors you can expect going into the training program and like the training techniques and little clever ways you can sort of like route around them. I actually never read that book, but a lot of my colleagues did like in the cohort of guys that I went to go do this training with and there's a recommended reading list at the end of that book um, and that I, I got a copy of that reading list and I was reading some of the books I didn't read that book because I guess I had like this idea that there was like some sort of purity uh, behind like attempting the program without reading this book and I, I don't know why I didn't read it I just didn't um, but I read Man's Search for Meaning because Man's Search for Meaning was on that list and I read a lot of history, like military history, particularly about like Navy SEALs, like um, Navy SEAL operations in Vietnam, UDTs during World War II, which was the foundations of the SEAL teams. Um, the SEAL teams, I believe, weren't founded officially until, I want to say, the 70s, but I could be wrong about that. It's been a while since I brushed up on this history, and then I read some books about Dick Marchenko's SEAL Team 6, which I believe was founded in the 80s. Um, it was kind of like just immersing myself in a lot of the lore and the history of the culture of a lot of these, um, of, of this very unique group of very special people um, who do things that the average person would probably consider impossible. So Man's Search for Meaning you know, had, a, had a big impact on sort of shaping my philosophies um, through this part of my life. And I've talked about this on Twitter before, but like I wasn't even, I say that I wasn't well-versed in like philosophy and history and all that type of stuff. And that's true. However, my upbringing was one, like I can remember being seven or eight years old and my dad reading me Solzhenitsyn at night. Um, so it's not like I was totally, uh, unaware of a lot of the philosophies that like I've rediscovered in fleshed out today it was just that I didn't have a very comprehensive view of how some of those philosophies and historical events fit into you know like a very comprehensive worldview like I feel like I have now um, so despite the fact that my dad read me Solzhenitsyn at the age of like seven or eight uh, I didn't yet fully understand like a lot of the the principles of like Austrian economics and the, the principles of liberty like I hadn't ever read um, Bastiat or um, really dove into the writings of someone like Thomas Jefferson like you know what what did he think what did he believe why was the the Constitution of the United States written the way that it was and and what principles was it based on to you know what foundational principles was it based on to protect so like I had this romantic notion that by becoming an agent of the state, I was protecting this idealistic vision of liberty that I had um, sort of been indoctrinated with through the public school system and uh, political propaganda and those types of things. And this was like largely 
politically agnostic, this nationalism, because, you know, I grew up in like a pretty conservative part of America and I enlisted in the military um, when Obama was in office, who was a Democrat. So I wasn't that like I was a hardcore Republican, although those at the time, those were probably the political ideology I aligned with more. Um, It was more so a matter of like defending this idea of liberty of America by serving the state because the state was the ultimate arbiter of liberty, uh, the last line of defense against the axis of evil. And this is just how I thought at the time, right? It was a very like simplistic and, and childlike understanding of the world, but it was based on like an understanding that, that, that liberty and freedom, you know, were, were necessary and good. Uh, but, but, without a fleshed up on fleshed out understanding of the mechanisms that make those things possible. So I enlisted in the Navy, which with a bachelor's degree, um, that's probably going to sound insane to any, any of you that maybe have served in the military. Um, but it's not uncommon at all for young men who are applying to do the Navy SEAL program. Um, I think that I would say certainly the majority of the applicants have college degrees and a good portion of active Navy SEALs have college degrees, even the ones that are enlisted. However, even though um, the pool of candidates grows increasingly more fit, uh, increasingly competitive and increasingly educated as the years go by, uh, you know, as the prestige of the community has um, expanded. The, the pool of applicants grows ever more qualified. Generally speaking, only about maybe 10%, maybe less of the guys who join the Navy to become Navy SEALs ever actually end up putting on a Trident. And, and it might it's probably even less than 10%. So here you have um, <clears throat> the most qualified individuals, like I would say like in the country. Um, they're, they're educated, they're they're motivated, they're self-actualized, they're incredibly physically fit. Um, and this isn't the case with all of them. Like, there's obviously outliers, like some guys slip through the cracks. But I would say by and large, 80 to 90% of the, the guys that I joined up, like with my cohort of people to go become Navy SEALs with were just all around incredible humans. Um, and they knew, like everybody knows going into this that, you know, you look around at all of these guys. And I'm talking about like, guys that were Olympic level swimmers, um, like college triathletes, like nationally ranked college triathletes, like, um, people that have done like multiple Ironmans, like nationally ranked, um, combative fighters, um, people who turned down like NFL drafts, uh, to, to go try to like become Navy SEALs. Like these are people that are very successful in their own right, have been, largely unchallenged by life, um, you know, in, in the mainstream at the status quo and are looking for something more. Um, and yet all of these people, uh, even so only about 10% of them or less will ever become Navy SEALs. And everybody knows that, um, going in, like I, there might be the edge case of the naive, like 18 year old kid who's just really fast and strong that says, well, I want to try that Navy SEAL thing. and doesn't really know what he's getting into. But by and large, the vast majority of the guys that I joined this program with were um, not that case. So 
what's happened over the years is that the Navy figured out that they were getting all of these incredibly overqualified people um, signing up to do the hardest job that they had. And they started using that as a recruiting tool. So when you sign up for the Navy um, and you join this thing that they, I, at the time when I was in it, they called it the Navy Challenge Program, I think. It, they changed like the criteria and the names and like the details of these types of programs all the time. So I can only speak to like what it was like when I did it. But um, you basically entered, like I said in, in part one, you entered like this what was essentially like a draft like you would see for the NFL where you enter like a pool of candidates and they do like round picks where they select the most qualified candidates and that group gets shipped off in a cohort. Um, and it, you know, if you don't get selected, you get recycled. And if you're not competitive enough, you'll just never get picked up. So when you join the Navy or when you rather when you sign the papers that agree like, yes, I'm enlisting in the military, you know, for X number of years or whatever to go try to become a Navy SEAL. So like I said, the Navy figured out that they could use this as a recruiting tool. Um, and the paperwork that you have to sign in order to get the opportunity to even attempt to go become a Navy SEAL basically says, I realize that I'm signing my life over to the government and I want to go attempt this extremely difficult program with an extremely high attrition rate. And it, should I fail, I recognize and accept that I will be the Navy's bitch um, for the next six years or however much time I have remaining on my commitment. And that, like, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic, but that is literally what you are signing um, when you sign up to go attempt this SEAL program. And I'll be honest, guys, like, I don't have a lot of animosity like I don't have any grudges or anything like that like against anybody that I went through the training with or any of the instructors that I was involved with um, honestly I loved every second of it like I loved every second that I was in that training pipeline it was it was it was like living a dream I'd wake up every morning and jump out of bed because I was just excited to face the day um, because it was for the first time in my life I was just challenged constantly uh, and, and surrounded by incredible people and, and pushed to my limit on a regular basis. And, and I loved it. I mean, I thrived. I really, really loved every second of it. Um, but I did not become a Navy SEAL, right? So we, we kind of have to walk through this period of my life and talk about just sort of how it went. And, and I, this has always been a hard, this was, I want to say, uh, six years ago, almost seven years ago at this point that I um, started this journey. And it's really hard to talk about with anybody who hasn't been through it because um, you just don't know. Like I cannot possibly provide you with enough detail to give you an accurate picture of what it was like. Um, and any attempts for me to recount like the challenges that you face going through this program, like I just can't do it justice. Like I can't possibly um, give you an accurate picture of what it's actually like to go through this training program. If you don't know anything about it or like if you really wanna just get a small snapshot of what it's like, go find um, a documentary. It's like 20 years old and it's called um, Class 234. 
and it's like a five or six part documentary. It's really good, but it basically follows a class of guys that go through BUDS, which it's about a six month training course. BUDS is only a small part of the two year training pipeline that you go through to actually become a Navy SEAL, but it's like the most prolific part of um, the training pipeline, BUDS, because it's definitely the most difficult physically and mentally probably. Um, because it's where the majority of the candidates are weeded out. So go watch that documentary. And that documentary will give you about one-tenth of an idea of what the program, how hard the program actually is. Because I would say, like, and I don't think I'm exaggerating here, um, that program, it's the, in real life, it's about ten times worse. I, I don't feel like I'm exaggerating when I say that. Um, it's, it's not a joke, right? I mean, you're talking about like, so let me, let me recount like what it was like for me, um, my experiences. So I, you join the Navy, um, you go to regular boot camp, um, and the way the Navy did it was all of these guys that I was in this cohort with that were going to go try to become Navy SEALs. And some of them were trying to go become special boat operators, which are kind of like Navy SEALs, but they're their job description is just a bit different and their training is a bit different. But the first uh, four or five, six months of the training pipeline is the same for these two groups of people. Um, we, were, we were all in like a boot camp division together. And it was not like, a, not like what any of us expected. Um, because they knew that we were self-actualized and you know wanted to work out and were extremely motivated types of people and the entire purpose of boot camp is to break you down mentally and reprogram you into a person that follows orders um i did almost no physical activity in boot camp the vast majority of what we did was sit on the floor clean and fill out paperwork um and they did this to us on purpose because they knew we wanted to work out. And they knew, it, like, guys would regularly get in trouble for breaking curfew at night and, like, being up around the barracks room, like, working out, like, doing pull-ups or push-ups or bear crawl races or wrestling. We would get in trouble for that all the time because they knew we wanted to work out and they wanted to prevent us from doing that um, to try to break us down mentally. Uh, when we would get in, when my boot camp division would get in trouble, we would have to write essays instead of having to do push-ups. Um, a bit strange, right? Like very, very atypical from what you would traditionally expect from like seeing movies and documentaries and stuff about what it's like to join the military. But that's what the first two years or first two months of my time in the Navy were like. Uh, so after that, you go on to, and, and again, I don't know what it's like now. This is just what it was like then. After that, you go on to what was called Naval Special Warfare Prep School, uh, which is basically like a two-month school of uh, training like you're a professional athlete. Like all day, every day, you're just working out for the most part. There was a little bit of other stuff in between, but 90% of our day-to-day -day routine was running, swimming, weightlifting um, with specialized, you know, highly educated, incredibly gifted coaches and some active duty Navy SEALs whose job was to kind of start easing us into um, the culture and the attitudes and the expectations of uh, this special warfare community. And a large part of that um, is just hazing, right? It's like just literally putting you through extremely punishing and demeaning physical torture. Uh, I can't really describe it any better way than that. Just making you do like 
horribly mundane things, um, putting you under a lot of stress constantly and physically torturing you. Like, I'm not talking about like poking you with hot iron rods. I'm talking about like physically torturing you through exercise uh, in most cases. And, and sometimes in things that like are, are borderline, um, like just putting you in a, like a painful situation or uncomfortable situations and seeing how you handle it uh, and constantly putting you under that kind of stress. So like we were, you know, in this uh, collegiate like athlete training program while also being subjected to this constant stress by these Navy SEALs. And that was about two months. And I would say in boot camp, we probably lost like maybe 10% of uh, my cohort to attrition. You know, guys who just were like, I don't want to do this anymore. Just give me a normal job in the Navy or whatever. Um, oh, and by the way, like I, I have people tell me all the time, like the average person doesn't understand this. Once you sign on the dotted line to join the military, you can't just like quit. You can't just say, all right, I'm putting in like my two weeks notice. This isn't for me. You're stuck. Like you're, there, there is no, um, ah, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. You are obligated to fulfill whatever the terms of your service are until it's over. And even then they don't have to always let you go. They can like retain you for various reasons. So like you're essentially signing a contract of indentured servitude when you join the military. Um, and I intend to talk about this more in the future too, but I just want to give you guys some background for those of you who don't know. Uh, so in this prep school after, after boot camp, we, I would say we had about an additional, maybe 30% attrition of the cohort of guys, you know, who like, who they just couldn't hack it physically. Cause it was incredibly challenging. I mean, I remember like getting to points where I was like blacking out in the pool because I was just at the point where I was like, I can't swim anymore. Like I can't swim anymore. This is too hard. I can't do this. I can't do this. But I would constantly push through that. Uh, and it was like I said, like I, I was never really all that good at running and swimming prior to joining the Navy. Um, I was a pretty mediocre runner and a pretty mediocre swimmer. And I, those words in my mentor's head were always echoing, you know, you'll never become a Navy SEAL because you'll never pass the runs. You'll never pass the swims, the timed runs and swims that you have to do every week in buds. And I was determined to prove him wrong. So like, despite the fact that most of the time I was swimming, you know, at this part in the training pipeline, I was like actively drowning because my swimming technique was so bad and I was so exhausted. I just push through like I was like I was just determined like I don't care if I die doing this I will not stop um and I you know I got to the point like after like this two months of uh very focused training where I became like you know a, a pretty decently fast runner and a not bad swimmer um like good enough you know like far better than the average person but like definitely not like Olympic level swimmer or anything like that but like good enough that's the thing about buds, right? You don't have to be um, like an Olympic level fast swimmer. You just have to be able to swim well and be willing to do it under extremely stressful conditions and for long distances uh, repeatedly for a long amount of time, uh, day in, day out, right? You don't have to be the fastest swimmer. You just have to be good enough to swim in the open ocean, you know, against the currents and meet the timed requirements. Uh, so we lost about 30% of our cohort through that training program. And then you go, they ship you out to Coronado, California, which is where like the heat really gets turned up. Uh, you go through about a month of indoc, which was sort of like pre-buds. It's like buds light. It's like buds, but it's not as serious. Um, that's probably the best way to put it. You, you acclimate to what life is like you know, running on soft sand in boots and pants, which is 
miserable, absolutely miserable. Carrying around those telephone pole logs um, in and out of the surf, getting wet and sandy, uh, which just is horrible. Being wet and cold and sandy all day long is horrible. It's horrible. I, I can't make you understand unless you've experienced it, but you, you chafe everywhere, all over your body. You're constantly shivering. You're constantly cold. Um, you're constantly like uncomfortable, um, constantly tired, you know, like, and all of this is like building up to what buds is like, where you're on a good night, maybe getting four nights of sleep, four hours of sleep on a good night. That's like, for me, that was like best case scenario. Some guys were able to pull out more than that, but uh, I wasn't able to. Um, getting you used to all of the expectations as far as like the constant inspections that you have that are designed to be practically impossible. Like it, I don't want to say that they were virtually impossible, but most of the time, like you were not able to meet the expectations. And this was just like a constant barrage of, Hey, here's the standard. You failed the standard. You didn't meet the standard. And now you got to pay. Um, that's, largely like what the day in day out routine is like in this type of training program it's like an impossibly high standard you didn't meet it now you have to pay the man and it's just to like beat into your head that every time you're, you're not doing everything you can to be absolutely perfect to like be as elite as possible you're you're failing and you're paying with your blood um it's to instill that mentality in you and like this whole like no man left behind you know like everywhere you go in buds um you have to have like what's called a sea buddy. If at any point in time, this is including like going to take a shit. If at any point in time an instructor catches you and you don't have like a buddy within six feet of you, you are your ass is going to get hammered. Um, that's just the way it works because that's the type of mentality that they're trying to like instill into you. Is that you're you're always like looking out for your team and and keeping yourself accountable to your team. So. After you go through this one month of indoc, I would say we lost like maybe another 10 to 20% of the cohort additional. You know, like this is additive, not multiplicative at this point. Um, we start first phase of buds, right? And first phase of buds is the meat grinder. It's when, it's when the vast majority of the attrition in the program happens. Um, it's not, you don't really learn very much about what it's like to be a Navy SEAL. You just get your ass pounded every single day for like two months um, or a month or something. I don't remember the exact timelines. And it and it used to culminate in what was called Hell Week. Now Hell Week is about halfway through first phase. They change it up all the time. Uh, but that's where you stay up for five days straight uh, and you don't get any sleep except for like maybe a couple hours. And you just get hammered for you know five days in a row all day long all night long and it's um one of it's the reason that the navy seal training pipeline is one of the hardest special operations training pipelines in the world is because of buds i'm sure many of you have probably or is because of hell week i'm sure many of you have probably heard of it or like heard that term used like in different contexts and it's generally referring to that i never even made it to hell week um my first class I got what's called swimming-induced pulmonary edema during an open ocean swim, uh, where essentially they, we, we weren't allowed to wear our wetsuits during one of the ocean swims, uh, and you're swimming in the extremely cold Pacific Ocean, and you're, when you do these open ocean swims, the ones in first phase are two nautical miles, 
um, which is a long distance. And you, so you have to learn how to like swim in a straight line in the ocean by navigating, by popping your head up out of the water occasionally to orient yourself. Because if you're not swimming in a straight line, like you're wasting a ton of time. Uh, so you have to learn to like meet these timed run and swim events. So every week in Buds, you have to swim two nautical miles and you have to do it in like under a certain time. I don't remember the time limit. And you have to run four miles on the beach in boots and pants. Um, and a lot of that is generally in the soft sand. And you have to meet these timed obligations every week or they'll kick you out of the program or roll you back for performance. Um, I, I can proudly say, you know, like despite the words of my mentors, I never failed a, a timed run or a swim the entire time I was in Buds, which for me was like, that was the goal, right? It was like, I'm gonna prove that dude wrong. Um, but I got a swimming induced pulmonary edema during my first class um, where I essentially got hypothermia during one of the swims and they had to pull me out of the water on the back of a jet ski because I was swimming the wrong direction or something like that. I, I don't really remember exactly what happened, uh, but my swim buddy basically flagged down the instructors and was like, hey, get this guy out of here. He's, he's messed up. Um, and as I was recovering from that, like I, my lungs started to fill up with fluid. Uh, it was very difficult for me to breathe. My oxygen saturations dropped below 90%. Um, and I was diagnosed with uh, pulmonary edema. Uh, it's, it's an extremely rare, swimming-induced pulmonary edema is extremely rare. It's only seen in like elite athletes that swim in cold water. That's, that's quite literally the only place that it manifests itself. Um, so most of the time when I say SIPE, like no one even knows what I'm talking about. Uh, so that took me about two, maybe three months to recover from. Um, and it was a pretty arduous. I, I would say I, I definitely got out of shape uh, in that time period. And then they rolled me into another class um, where I started BUDS again from the beginning, from day one, one of phase one of BUDS. Um, here's where it gets weird, right? Uh, so my first class and my second class, the difference between the two was like night and day. Like the intensity of the instructors, the expectations, the amount of beatdowns, uh, it was entirely different. And I don't entirely know exactly why. Um, all I know is that my second class, <clears throat> my first class, I think uh, like around 40 guys finished Hell Week out of like the 150 or so that started. My second class, only 16 of the 160 who started first phase finished Hell Week. Uh, and it was just because it was, it was so much harder. I don't know why. Um, I couldn't tell you why. All I would be able to do is speculate as to why. Uh, all I know is that there was a lot of variance when it came to like the stress level and the difficulty between the two classes. Um, and part of that may have been mental for me. I don't know. Uh, but what ended up happening to me was there is an evolution in BUDS called life-saving, essentially where you have to get into the pool with an instructor and the instructor is in full. Uh, they have on like fins and a mask and a snorkel and you're essentially naked. You're like in your underwear. And you have to basically like get in the water with this guy and they're, this is like a trained Navy SEAL. And you have to wrestle him to the surface and swim him to the side of the pool uh, without drowning. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, it was, yeah, I, I just couldn't, it was too hard. Um, I essentially like half blacked out slash like came to the surface. Cause I, like, I stopped wrestling the guy and like pushed him away from me and like came to the surface, 
like hyperventilating because I'm panicking and I'm exhausted. Um, I'm stressed. I'm tired. And they were like, are you done? And in that moment, I guess in my head, I thought they were asking me like if I was done attempting the evolution. But what they meant was like, are you done with training? And I said yes. Uh, and they wouldn't let me walk that back. Like they, they took me to the bell. When you, when you DOR at Buds, which is drop on request, you have to go to this bell and you ring the bell. And everyone knows like when you hear the bell ringing because you can hear it across the whole compound like another one of your classmates just quit. And I stood in front of that bell for like three hours. Uh, and I told them that I, I didn't want to quit and I wasn't going to quit. And, uh, you know, through whatever means that they use, um, they were able to, like, convince me that I was just being selfish and, like, keeping them from being able to go home to see their families. And I had no choice. I had already quit and I had to ring the bell. And I rang the bell. And um, shortly after that, like, some guy came up to me and was like, dude, you shouldn't have rung the bell. And I was like, well, it's, it's too late now. I did. Uh, I, I don't know if that was just some sort of test or some sort of game, probably. I don't know what would have happened to me if I hadn't, but I did. Um, and from that moment on, like, my, my whole life came crashing down. Ringing that bell was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life because it, it destroyed me. My entire identity for years had been built around this idea that I was going to be a Navy SEAL. It was who I was. I was the guy that was going to be a Navy SEAL. That, that was me, right? That was like my whole persona, my whole identity. Like all, when I looked at the future, that was all I saw. Um, and I'm not alone, right? So I had three friends kill themselves in the aftermath of like failing slash ringing out of buds. Um, that's how serious this is. Like in the immediate aftermath. I, I've lost touch with a lot of those guys. I don't know if that trend kind of continues later on. All I know is that like I knew multiple people that either through their own negligence or suicide you know, died um, in the aftermath of this because it's so absolutely destructive um, to, your, to your person um, to, to fail out of this program. And like you don't really hear about this side of this you know, you, you hear about the guys like um, that, that make it through and become superstars and go and kill Osama bin Laden or whatever. But like you don't hear the dirty little secret because what remember how I told you about that piece of paper that you sign when you join the military uh, to try and go become a Navy SEAL. Essentially, what happens is now the Navy's got you right. They've got this physically fit overqualified, overeducated person uh, who signed up to do the hardest, one of the hardest jobs in the world. Not just one of the hardest jobs that the Navy has, but one of the hardest jobs in the world. You volunteered for this. Now they've got you by the balls. And I saw guys with like master's degrees, you know, who could have done anything. They could have done anything. Like these people could have gone and become professional athletes. They could have went and become doctors or started companies. Um, get sent as undesignated, unrated airmen to a ship to go chip paint for four years. And again, this is one of those things where like, I cannot provide you with enough context to know what that sort of a sentence is like, unless you've been through it or seen it. Um, I can't even begin to describe, I don't even have enough time to describe to you like what the Navy is like and, and how shitty the culture is and like how being on a ship is like being on a floating prison 
um, and, and how fucked up like a lot of the expectations and, and culture is um, and how fascist it is. Uh, that would probably be like, a, I, I actually intend to do like a discussion on this with Rollo McFlugo uh, sometime soon on like the fascism of the culture of the military and like what it's like. Uh, but that isn't really for the purposes of this. The purposes of this is to talk about how, you know, I went from being like on cloud nine pursuing my dreams and like living out what I thought was my self-actualization to rock bottom. Um, I can safely say that I have never been anywhere close to as low as I was in the aftermath of that program. Um, and like, you know, some guys get out of the program and they're lucky. They, they get offered like a really good job and they go on to go do something really cool in the Navy that they really enjoy. Most guys are not that lucky. Um, most guys get given like what I basically call like a prison sentence, right? Where you're sent to do some menial task that you're far overqualified and overeducated to do. And it just beats you down for years and years and years. It beats you down. Um, and that's what happened to me. Like I didn't get the worst job I could have gotten, but I did not get a good one. Um, and you know, there, there were some upsides to it. There were a lot of downsides to it, but it was the hand that I was dealt, right? So in this, in the face of this ego death, um, it took me, so here's the thing about buds, right? Buds is designed to totally break you down mentally and physically as a human being. The military does this to you in boot camp, but not nearly to the degree. And, th and this is why this all ties back to, um, the man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl, because the techniques used to dehumanize you and break you down, um, by these instructors that train these elite special forces guys are some of the similar techniques like psychological techniques used to manipulate and break down like prisoners in a concentration camp and that sounds hyperbolic but like it, unless you again unless you've like been through this um you don't know that that how true that is uh, it, it is a little bit of exaggeration because at any point in time, like in these special warfare programs, you can just quit. You can just say, I don't want to do this anymore. But in some sense, like that actually makes it worse, right? Because every second of the day, you're wrestling with the fact that like you're choosing to do this. Like you're choosing to put yourself through this, this torture. Um, and it has pretty profound psychological impacts on the people who go through the breakdown part and then don't get the build back up part on the other end that like all of the Navy SEALs get. So like you get broken down, you know, you, I went through, I was in the pipeline for like nine months, I think. And you know, on the other end of it, here I am just like this shell of a person, um, completely like busted and broken down and, and hurting and depressed. Um, and I'm just thrown out into the Navy, like the, the Joe Schmo Navy with like, you know, total culture shock because I don't know anything about like, I didn't sign up to become a regular sailor. I don't know, like, it, it's just a totally different environment and total culture shock. You don't fit in. No one can sympathize with what you've just been through. And you're immediately like thrown back out into this. To essentially, the Navy is using um, this program to recruit overqualified, overeducated individuals to fill undermanned job billets that no one wants like cooks and paint chippers and um, you know, boats and mates and not saying that no one wants to do those things. And if you do those things, good for you. And if you enjoyed and fight pride in it, good for you. I don't want to take that away from you. Uh, but that's not what these guys who signed up 
for the Navy signed up to do, right? So there's obviously a lot of stress that comes with that, like a lot of mental anguish um, for the types of people that are attracted to the SEAL program. Uh, so <clears throat> my story following like this period of very intense breakdown is one of a lot of anger, um, a lot of uh, the five stages of grief, right? And figuring out what I needed to do to build myself back up. Because even in the moments of like this extreme, like desperation and darkness, like the lowest points of my life, like I, I married my wife who, like I told you, you know, I, I wrote that letter to in college. Um, <clears throat> I, I realized that I had the opportunity to like reinvent myself, to build myself back up. I married my wife. Um, I went out of my way to like pursue whatever opportunities I could find to still get some of the satisfaction of the motivations I had for joining. Like I, I went to vessel boarding search and seizure school. I volunteered for this to like go still get some, some close quarters combat training. Um, I went and became a search and rescue swimmer, which was funny, you know, that I, I failed out of um, buds for life saving, and I ended up becoming a search and rescue swimmer. And um, w when I joined the Navy, I could like barely even swim, uh, and I ended up becoming a, a search and rescue swimmer. And that was honestly a, something I took great pride in. Uh, it was something I really enjoyed. It was the only part of the Navy that I enjoyed at all was going and becoming a search and rescue swimmer. Uh, that was an extremely valuable experience for me. And um, I, I still, to this day, like have a, have a lot of pride, like in that community and in that job, which in the Navy, it's, it's um, like a collateral duty. It wasn't like my primary job, but uh, I think most people who become search and rescue swimmers in the Navy, like when someone asks what they do in the Navy, they say, I'm a search and rescue swimmer. Cause that's like what they care the most about. And they, they care a lot less about all the other BS. Um, so going through this process of like reinventing myself, um, and, and I, it sounds kind of like, oh yeah, that whole time from then on I was on the up and up, but that's really not true. Like the whole past seven years, six years, I guess, uh, have been a lot of dealing with some, some pretty low points. Like I would say five of the six years following buds, five of the seven years that I was in the Navy, I was separated from my wife. Um, and, you know, and then eventually my daughter, uh, and, and that's horrible. Like I'm talking about like maybe 30, 60, 90 days out of the year, I get to see my family. Um, and like, so there was like a lot of wrestling with just a lot of, uh, what would you call it? Um, self pity, uh, self doubt, um, a lot of imposter syndrome and feelings of inadequacy, feeling like a failure, um, cause they really do like breed this mentality in your head that like, okay, the winners become Navy SEALs and the losers don't. Uh, and it's really hard to kind of discard that. And cause in a sense it's true, right? Like the winners went on and became Navy SEALs and the losers didn't, the losers got the, the prison sentence. Um, so in a sense, like that is true and you have to kind of like reconcile that with and deal with it and, and deal with that reality or, you know, you end up killing yourself. Um, so in that process, I'm about out of time on my segment here. I'm going to have to edit this out and probably maybe even do a part three. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess I'll probably just do a part three on the death of self because I think I've gotten to the point where like I've covered the motivations, the prep work, the, the death of self, um, which I, again, I don't think I can really do it 
justice. I, I feel like even just talking about it doesn't do it justice, but um, I just wanted to give you guys a rough picture. From now, I'll probably do a part three, and I'll talk about like what the build back was like uh, following that death of self and how I sort of ended up where I am today. Um, and, and I think that really the only thing that I'm trying to do here is paint a picture for you on the value of eco-death. Um, and again, it's not like this is the type of thing that you can like sign up for. Like certainly I'm not telling you to sign up to go become a Navy SEAL. Like don't do that. Don't, don't ever join the military. It's the worst possible decision you could ever make for yourself. Um, and again, I'll talk about that again more later in the future and, and how I arrived at that conclusion. But the purposes of this is just to talk about the ego death. So I'll probably do a part three sometime soon um, where I go more into uh, what it was like to, to move past that ego death and, and where I am today. Thanks.